Well, thank you, Sam, and thank you, uh, Edvin and the team, for leading us in worship. Shalom to those of you who are uh, at Bukibato and those of you who are online, and of course, those of you who are on site. So today, it's the sermon number five in our new series called Exodus 2, Settling into the New Normal. And I hope that you have, uh, I trust that you have been having a fresh manner since our first uh, sermon on this, right? So today is Sermon 5, and uh, we'll be looking at Exodus 20. Now, we'll be touching on a topic that has brought many a fully grown man to his knees, you know, trembling with fear before God. What can it be? What is the subject? If you turn to your Bibles, right, and you look at Exodus 20, and those of you, you know, with the heading, it will be the what? The 10, 9, no, no, 10, what? 10 commandments. And when you hear 10 commandments, you know, there must, must be sound effects. There must be like loud thunder. There must be like flashes of lightning, right? The 10 commandments, something that when you hear, you say, oh no, that list of do's and don'ts, who can meet those, uh, the commandments? Who can follow, right? But I want to tell you today that it's not just commandments. In fact, we want to, Reframe it slightly. It's not just 10 commandments. There are actually 10 requirements or 10 rules for engagement, to engage with the Lord. Dr. Douglas Stewart, the Old Testament professor, has put it so neatly and so nicely. He says, no rules, no relationship. Okay, no rules, no relationship. Every relationship has rules. Okay, whether it's between the husband, the wife, the parents, the child, the employer, the employee, the teacher, the student, among classmates, among colleagues, there are rules that determine how a relationship flows. Not just the formal things and the serious things, but also in sports, right? There are also rules. Otherwise, how do you know you're playing, uh, how to play the game? In fact, how do you know you're winning or losing? And even on social media platforms, there are rules, you know. Because when you don't follow those rules, what happens to you? You get unfriended. You get cancelled. So, no rules, no relationship. And so, where is uh, Israel right now? Israel has been kind of drafted, adopted into the new family we heard last week, right? God established a new home and then placed Israel in as the new family. So, no rules, no relationships. New relationships, new rules. Okay? If there's a new relationship, there must be new rules of engagement as well, which is another slide, right? No, new rules, new relationships. So how was, Yao, uh, how was Israel going to uh, exhibit those, uh, this new relationship? How was Israel going to relate to Yahweh in this new relationship? So today's topic is a new way by conducting herself in a new way, and that new way is to love God. So the key word is not law. The key word is actually love. So the big idea today, Yahweh commands us to love and worship Him alone. Today we'll be looking at the three, the first three of the 10 requirements or 10 rules of engagement. Okay? So before we dive into the content itself, I just want to set the thing correctly. Where is Exodus 20? Exodus 20 occurs right after Exodus 19, right? So what happened in Exodus 19? Last week we heard there is the reconstitution of the family of God. So that started. And then Exodus 24, what is Exodus 24? That is the ratification of that covenant. So the covenant was uh, instituted, constituted, and then ratified. But between these two is where the requirements were given. The requirements for keeping this covenant. What does it mean? It means that it wasn't because of the ability to keep the covenant that they were uh, reconstituted into the family. No, they were already family members. So because of that relationship, now the rules. Sometimes we take it, you know, we put it backwards and we think we must fulfill those rules, obey to the dot, you know, then we become included in the family of God. But you see the sequence? No, you're already a family. You're in the family of God. Because you are in the family of God, you have this new relationship, then therefore, there are rules for keeping yourself in this covenant or this family. Okay, got that? And so scholars have told us that this covenant keeping, this 
10 requirements actually mirror something, a treaty that was very prevalent in the ancient Near East, and it's called the Suzerain Vasa Treaty. Okay, let me explain. Huh? Suzerain, who's the suzerain? Suzerain is this superior, stronger power, and the Vasa is this inferior, weaker power. And what happens is, agreement comes because the suzerain has conquered right, the vessel. And so they enter into an agreement where the, the, the superior suzerain would say, you will get my continued protection if you continue to obey me. All right? So it was a, it was a, a, a play of a, a agreement between two non-equal parties, one stronger and one weaker. So in this agreement, there are six parts. There's a six-part format, which when you read Exodus 20 to 24, you see exactly the six-part format. Okay, so it's like the suzerain Vesa Treaty, but it's also very different. How different? Because in the suzerain Vesa Treaty, it was the conquest. It was the conqueror and the conquered. But between Yahweh and Israel, it's not. Yahweh did not conquer Israel. What did Yahweh do to Israel or do for Israel? Yahweh delivered, you know. All right? Yahweh delivered Israel. And so Israel was not supposed, to, um, was not just for the benefit of Yahweh. In fact, Yahweh rescued them so that they can now experience the benefit. So very, very different, right? In the suzerain vessel, the suzerain would benefit, would gain from the vessel. But in, in the way Yahweh has related himself to Israel, it was so that Israel coming into this covering of this new family would experience the benefit that God has for, for uh, Israel. So in the Vesa, the compliance was due to what? The motivation of fear. They, need, they, they were fearful because if they didn't do anything correct, then the, the stronger one, the superior one, would squash them, you know. But between Yahweh and Israel, it was the motivation of faith, right? So that they can experience the continued favor of Yahweh. So you see, it's very, very different. The treaty and the requirements that we will look at they're not to like uh, suppress Israel, but to lift Israel up. It's not to like erase Israel as a nation, but it's actually to promote Israel as God's family, as his images, and as his mediators. All right? So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. So these opening two verses resemble exactly the suzerainty treaties with a preamble and a prologue. Okay, how does the preamble go? Let's look. Huh? Uh, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. Who spoke? God, right? Now, in the suzerain uh, vessel treaty, it was never the main person. It was always through a mediator. But in this case, God spoke, not Moses. God spoke you know, to all. And he said this, okay, the preamble, I am the Lord your God. What's this preamble? The preamble is to introduce who he was. I am the Lord your God. And then the prologue. So the prologue, signifies where the relationship be began. How did the relationship begin? Okay, um, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So in that opening two, uh, two verses, the Lord is saying, who I am to you. I am the Lord your God. What did I do for you? I rescued you, right? I delivered you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now this is very important. These two are not just, you know, Throw away bits. Because if you don't understand this, the rest of it will be like do's and don'ts. Because you don't understand that there's a relationship already established. And the relationship is between the Lord, their God, who brought them out, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So once you know that, the rest of it are just requirements that follow uh, the relationship. Okay? So that's why if you don't have a relationship with the Lord and you go and look at the Ten Commandments, it's like, wow, what is this? Who can do this? Who should do this? Who would want to do this? But when you have a relationship, you realize that these are requirements that establishes that relationship. Okay? So, no rules, no relationship. So, let's look at the first requirement of, of how they can keep this relationship going. It's in verse 3, and it says this, The first requirement that the Lord wanted from them, the first covenant requirement is, Love Yahweh alone. Alone. Okay? Verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Or to put it in another way, You shall not have any other gods before me. So say to one another, or type in the chat, No other gods. No other gods. Right. Thank you. So what does it mean? You shall have no other gods 
before me. You know? Before me. What does before me mean? Does it mean that you can have other gods after me? No, no. Before means it, not in my presence, not in my face, you know. Not be, besides me, you can have no other God. So Yahweh was not talking about just being number one. You know? The priority, he was talking about being the only one, you know. Exclusivity. You know? To be exclusive. I mean, it's good for us to give God the priority, but that's not what he's saying in the first requirement. He's saying, I must be the only one God in your life. Now, this is important to Israel. Why? Because Israel just came up from Egypt. How many years? Over 400 years. What did they experience? They experienced the way the Egyptians worshipped with a pantheon of gods, many, many gods, gods of many, many kinds. Why? Because in their mind, a god can have only limited uh, power, uh, beyond which this particular god would have no jurisdiction. And so they have many, many gods to cover, you know? every area, whether it's harvest, whether it's the, the river, whether it's the water, whatever it is, so they have many gods. So they have a pantheon of gods. That's how they, they survive or how they, they thought their theology. But God is saying, although Yahweh is an Elohim, no Elohim is Yahweh. Okay, so he's saying, I'm not like any other gods. I don't need any other gods. In fact, I proved to you how it was easy peasy, right? To handle all their gods. Remember the 10 plagues? He said, well, that, I, I didn't even need any help from anybody. They tried, but no match. No match for me. Right? Easy for me to overdo, uh, uh, to overpower them. Easy for me to just apply shock and awe. You know? They have nothing to say. So he's trying to tell them that I'm different. I'm absolute. Only Yahweh is absolute and all-powerful. Only He sovereign, sovereignly shapes history all by Himself. Only He is Lord and creator of all. So you shall have no other gods before me in my presence between me and you. There must be no other God. I am the supreme God of your life. Second, he's saying, Yahweh may not be there first, but they, he must be their last. Not the first, but the last. So not only must you have no other gods before me, you, you can have no other gods after me. So I'm, I'm, I may not be the first, but I'm definitely the last for you. So why is this important? Because even for some of us, coming to faith in, in the Lord may not be the first, right? Depending on our background. So for, for me, my family, Davis. And so when I, when I came to the realization that there was a true God and His name is Jesus, and when I gave my life to Him, He's not so particular about whether He was the first. He's more particular about whether He's the last, you know. And so for Israel, they have to know that God, Yahweh, who has revealed himself to them now, must be their last. Right? Before that, okay, excusable, they didn't know. But now God has revealed himself, so he must be the last. No straying, no wandering, affection after this point. And so it's a very apt, you know, very apt um, illustration for this is the, the marriage vows that we, we give to one another. You've witnessed many marriages. And when the husband and the wife, when they exchange the vows, what do they say? They say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish you until what happens? Until death do us part. See, it doesn't matter, okay, in this world, it's so complicated, but it doesn't matter if they were not the first for one another. But they must be the last for each other. Okay, that's what the Lord is saying. And so one newly wed um, man, you know, was asked by his friend, hey, so, so how is your marriage going? How is everything? They said, oh, good news. My wife just renewed me for another season. Wow. So that's very <laughs> precarious. You've know? you got to live by the seasons. So, but it's comforting, right, for husband and wife to say, look, I don't care who was first, not important, but we are the last. We must be the last for one another. And our relationship must last. Okay? So that's the first requirement. Yahweh must be all or nothing. He must be the Lord of all or not Lord at all. What does it mean for us, right? It's like looking at your phone and you've got, I don't know, 300 con contacts. I don't know how many you have. Lah. But you're deciding on one contact uh, to remain and you must delete everything else, you know. Well, that will give you, you know, nervous anxiety, right? Who, who, who? But that's what he's saying. I'm the only app in your phone left. I'm the only contact in your phone. Nothing else must take a second place. Nothing else, all right? So that means as Christians, we will not exalt anything or anyone else to the same 
status as the Lord. We cannot love riches, fame, positions, prestige, or anything else as much as we love God. We cannot look to or depend on other sources for direction and provision, such as some people horoscopes or charms or amulets or fortune tellings or even uh, a God of prosperity. We don't look to that. He alone, only He alone must have sole ownership of us. And so loving God alone did not mean that Israel was missing out. Sometimes you think, oh, only Him, what happens? But they were not missing out. In fact, Yahweh did that to simplify their loyalty. Jesus said you cannot serve two, what, masters, right? Either you love one or you hate the other, you cannot. So the Lord knows that we cannot serve more than one master because it will lead to chaos, confusion, and divided devotion. It will be bad. It will be hard for us to juggle. So Israel, as God's treasured possession, was to respond by loving Him and loving Him alone. His exclusive lordship over them ensured that they would continue to experience His comprehensive cover, His blessings and His benefits. And so the first requirement sets the pace for the second requirement, which is in verse 4. It says, worship Yahweh acceptably. First one was love Yahweh alone. Second is worship Yahweh acceptably. Verse 4, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you say to one another or type in the chat, no images. So stop taking pictures. <laughs> you see, Israel was not to, in their worship, they were not to follow all the practices of the nations around them. So what were the past? Their past, like I said, you know, they were living in Egypt and they saw the, the thousands of images of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. That was not the way Yahweh wanted to be worshipped. But looking to their future, fast forward to the future, Canaan, the promised land, right? In the promised land, the Canaanites were steeped with what? With the cultic and religious polytheistic practices. So they were not going to be the good example. In fact, the Lord said, He's going to drive them out because of their polytheistic practices, right? So where is now, where is uh, Israel going to learn the right way to worship God? Not from their past and not in their future. So the way they worship God is through the revelation that God was giving to them, the Word of God. Now listen, you and I may want to worship God in the best that we know how, all right? But if the best is not biblical, what happens, eh? What, is, what are you worshipping? When you're worshipping with the best ideas, the best you can think, you think God will like this. When you're worshipping God in the best that you can think, but not biblical, you're not worshipping God. You're worshipping worship. Right? So that's, that's why it was very important. The Lord said, no carved images. Because they do nothing to help you in worshipping who I am. Who Yahweh is. First thing, Yahweh said, I am the creator, I'm never the created. So whatever worship instincts you have, you've got to throw them aside, you've got to unlearn, and you've got to relearn. Because Yahweh stands above creation. Whether in heaven, on the earth, or underneath the earth. He said, I'm beyond. You cannot use anything on earth to try to represent me. First, it is impossible. It is impossible. Nothing on earth, nothing in creation can ever represent God. Jesus said, you know, to the Samaritan woman, John 4, 24, when she was kind of confused, how was it to, how, how to worship God acceptably? Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Yahweh, as the object of worship in the Bible, is usually invisible, usually. Last week, uh, we heard about the Theophanies. Okay, aside from that, he is spirit. So anything that we want to depict, right, a calf image, it's impossible because it's always inaccurate. So when we try to put God in, a, in something, you know, whether it's a tree or an animal, that, that we're limiting God and putting Him in a box, right? We're putting Him in a box, a box of what? box of our expectations and our imaginations. Because we think God is like that. Then we, we create something to, to resemble God. But it's always going to be inaccurate. It is never going to be enough. You can never store even the smallest, uh, minutest fragment of God's majesty in that. You know. It will always be inaccurate. 
What does Paul say? You know, he said in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think or imagine. So once we create something and say, this is God, that's where the problem is. This is not God. Because God is not limited by your imagination. That, once you see God in a, in a structure, our faith is limited to that. Right? Okay. Another thing that, that happens here, uh, this will actually break, violate the first rule, which is this. Not only is Yahweh the creator, never the created, the created can become idols. Okay, God has given us the power to create, wonderful power, because we are the images of God, right? We can create beautiful works of art, um, even of, of technology, which we are enjoying today, right? So all these things are powerful and beautiful. But the problem with this is that all these things point to God. They are not God. But because we are kind of like we are, you know, we, 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 our instincts are wrong. So when we see something so beautiful and so attractive, we, we kind of like, everything is in that thing, you know, instead of God. And we miss and we go, uh, we don't go beyond the object as our object of worship. We kind of like let our love stop with that, that created thing. So that created thing becomes the idol which the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't go far enough. It should point us, everything of beauty should point us back to God. But because we are so attached, so absorbed, so uh, caught up in that thing that we have created, uh, that we miss God. So for many years, before I received the glorious invitation of the Lord to accept Him as my God and my Lord and my Saviour, you know what, who, what, was, what was God to me? Music. Music was my God. You know? So what, what did that mean? That means that I would sometimes, you know, uh, go without food, without sleep. I would practice non-stop just to perfect one part, one bar. It was a God that I served. So everything I did or didn't do was for this God. Sometimes I would even sacrifice relationships so that I could become uh, more worthy to worship this God of music. So I was so kind of like, I, I couldn't see beyond the music. I could only see the music. And because I was so engrossed in it, sometimes, you know, I would feel very upset that when somebody would comment or criticize the music that I was making for this God. See, it became something so, so personal. So I was only set free when I came to the Lord. Because then, when I knew that music was not God, He was pointing me to God, but it was not God. And then music had its rightful place, serving the worship of God. And that was the thing that freed me. Because it's so easy for us to look at the, what we have created or to see what other people have created and say, wow, and admire it as though it was God. So no graven images, no carved image. Okay, was there uh, going to be some repercussions if we did that, if we have other gods, if we have carved images? Yes, verse 5 and verse 6. There are summary conditions, summary consequence for both the first and second requirements. Look at it. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I don't know what catches your eye. The, the word that catches me is this adjective used of God. You, know? you, see, you shall not bow down to them, meaning the other gods or the calf images, or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a Jealous God. This word, jealous. I think the same effect would have been there if God said, you know, don't bow to them, for I am a powerful, fearful, awesome, you know, vindictive God. That would have got their attention, but he didn't say that. He said, because I am a jealous God. So why did God use this word, jealous? And you know, this particular Hebrew word is used only of God. God's jealousy, never of man's jealousy. So it's a different kind, it's a pure form of jealousy. But why was the word Use. Why did God say that He was a jealous God? Because jealous is what? It's a love language. It's a lover terminology. When do you use love? Only when your affections are being vied for, right? Or somebody's competing for your affection. And then it should be you, but somebody else, you know? So you get jealous because of that. So what is the Lord saying? The Lord is saying that I'm jealous for your love. That's what I'm desiring. I don't care about the, the rest, but it's your love. Right? When you go and worship other gods and you have all these idols and you, they become like God to you, 
You're putting your affection on the wrong thing. I am a jealous God. So what are the consequences? He said, failure to comply to this will result in something. First, he said, the Lord said, I will visit the iniquity, uh, the, the guilty. I will visit the guilty with punishment to the third or the fourth generations. What's the third, fourth generation? That may simply mean a household where you have parents, right? Sons, the son's kids, and then the great-grandkids. All right? So that's like a household. But look at how ridiculously opposite, né? For those who love God, he says, but showing steadfast love to thousands, yeah, uncountable, of those who love me. You see what's the contrast? Those who hate me and those who love me. So Yahweh is using love language. He's saying, I want you to love me in the way that is appropriate, in the way that is right and uplifting. Because as fallen human beings, right, our worship is terribly skewed. And it's not accurate, it's totally unreliable. Paul said, they worship humanity, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And time and time again, we want to worship God on our own terms. You know? We don't know what's wrong with that. When we worship God on our own terms, sometimes we over worship God because we think he's a, a taskmaster, a slave driver, right? Until he gets everything from us, that's not worship. But does God require that? No, he doesn't. He reveals to us exactly how he wants to be worshipped. And so we won't try to substitute that love that God wants from us with stuff. Oh, Lord, I've been going for the missions trip. I've been doing this. I've been doing that online. I've been giving to you and that's like, you know, the replacement for what you want. Love. That's how families sometimes operate, right? The children need the attention of the parents and the parents say, well, I'm too busy. I'm going to give you a big gift, you know, for Christmas and that should pacify you. But that's not what your kid wants. The kid wants your love. And God is saying, you know, don't overdo it. I, I'm not asking you to do all these things. Otherwise, it becomes religious. I'm just, I'm just asking you to show me the love that is due me. So Israel, as God's mediators uh, to the nations, had to act differently because she was worshipping a, a different God who did not need any image to represent because all representations of Him will be inaccurate, inadequate, and impossible. No way. Okay, but what is this that we need to learn that ties up with the third requirement? See, the only worthy images of God, only worthy images of God, are not the idols, the images, the objects we make. The only worthy images of God are mankind, humankind, who bears His image. So who bears the rightful image? We. That's why we should not put something and say, this is God, let's worship, because God has made us His images. Third requirement leads us nicely to that, which it says, the third requirement is this, we are to represent Yahweh, what? Accurately. Because we are the rightful images. And every time we use an object, we relegate our position, we are. But we need to represent Him accurately. So say to one another, accurately. Okay, I hope you say that accurately. Yeah? Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. Now, this is very serious. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. See, thus far in this story, God has already revealed His name twice, right? Specifically, as healer and as the banner, right? So God is basically saying, I'm going to give you the family rights you know, to use my name. You can take on my, the family surname. You know, who am I, whatever I am, you can bear that. You can take. So the word take is a privilege. To, to take it means to bear, to carry his name, to bear the weight of his name, to bear the glory of his name. You see, Israel, as Yahweh's representatives, last week we heard in the message, Sermon 4, as his representatives, we were given full responsibility, you know, and the possibility of what? Of lifting or exalting his reputation or tarnishing his, res his reputation. And you, you see that God, in giving us his name, right, showed loving initiative, you know, because he didn't know when, I mean, he knew, of course, but when he gave us his name, right, he's like, you know, are, are you going to mess it up? Are you going to take it and be responsible about bearing my name? You know, today, when celebrities, uh, when, they, when they file up, you know, what happens to, to the brands that are endorsing them? They take, they take back, right? They say, oh, hey, man, 
you, you fell from grace. You were very popular, but you fell from grace and you had a follow with the public. Now we don't want to, we want to dis disassociate ourselves with you. No more shall you carry our brand because you don't represent our values. You know. So representing God's name is very, very powerful. Today I understand that you know, during baptism, you're given, uh, some, some of you take new names, uh, Christian names, middle names, right? So for example, it, it could be Joey Appleton, you know? <laughs> or, or, or John, John Wick Lin, you know? But it's okay, you can take whatever name. The only, the only thing is, you should represent that name well, you should bear that name well, correct? I don't know how you bear Apple well, but you know. <laughs> but don't just take a name. The Lord is saying, I'm giving you my name. Don't treat it as it was nothing, you know, because that's the problem, which is the possibility. The possibility is taking the name of God in vain. You know? Now, when you look at this, most people will say in vain means, you know, uh, using his name in a, in a, you know, curse, to curse people or in a blasphemous way or in a flippant way. But it's not this. Although that hurts, you know. Whenever I hear that in a movie, you know, it hurts my ears and it hurts my stomach, you know. And sometimes you hear in conversations and not that you want to, but it's, they're speaking so loud and they're using the name of the Lord in vain. You know? I mean, okay, that's a traditional understanding of in vain. But it doesn't mean that. It means something more than that. You know? It means whenever we use his name in vain, we are falsely representing Him. That means uh, we take Him to be of no consequence. You know? It's just a name. You know? And then what? We give Him lip service. What, what is lip service? Lip service is to say something, but we don't feel that, you know, okay, we sing songs, right? We sing and we speak, but we don't feel that, we, you know, we, it's, it's not true. We, don't, we are not thinking of that in our uh, head or in our heart. Or worse off, we, we don't even do things that actually represent what we, what we sing or say. So I, I so appreciate uh, Matt Redman when he wrote this song. Um, I'll bring you more than a song for a song in, it, in itself, right? It's not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. So we take his name in vain when we say something and it's not reflected in our thoughts, in our heart, or in our actions. And that's called misrepresentation. So what's the penalty? God said, I will not hold him guiltless. Very strange. Instead of saying, I will hold him guilty, right? He's saying the opposite. I will not hold him guiltless. That means he is guilty. If you do that, you will not be innocent, Okay, listen, it's not so much about representing God. Are you representing God? You know, in all that you do, in all you say, are you representing God? That's not the question here. The question is, in all that you do and say, are you misrepresenting God? Are you misrepresenting God? Okay, that's the question. So, why was this so serious? You look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. This is Moses saying, right? He said, keep them. What is them? The verses are not here. Okay, keep them. Them means the covenant requirements. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of all the statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? See, whenever we call upon Him, He's so near to us. Verse 8, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today. So the Lord is saying, you know you are special. You are His treasured possession, chosen to be His images, to be His mediators. When you represent Him, you will draw people to Him and He will get the glory. When you misrepresent Him, people will reject Him, not for who He is, but for how you have misrepresented Him. So that's the seriousness of the third requirement. Not that we are representing Him, but we are misrepresenting him. So now, Israel is God's uh, new family. As family, what do we do? We, as family, we do our utmost not to bring our family dishonor, right? And disrepute. We want to put our family in the best light. And so Israel, as God's images, was to represent his glory and bear witness to his righteous rule in, the, in her life. You see, God's requirement was not something uh, bad. It was something good for their good. 
God's requirements was to draw out from us love. Love for God and love for people in our response to His love for us. So the key is always loving God. When we love God, we want to live up to His name. We do not want to misrepresent Him at home, at school, at office. Because we are His treasured possessions, we are His royal priests, and we are His holy people. You know, one time years ago, um, I was talking to my mom, and she was not a believer then, you know, and, and she said something you know, about my grandmother, which I got upset. Yeah. So I just, <laughs> I just said something. I thought, I thought that was that, you know. I thought it was righteous anger or something to that effect. I thought, you know, she deserved to hear the truth or something. <laughs> but when, I, when that night when I went uh, to do my kind of quiet time devotion, I could, not, I could not do it. I could not proceed, you know. Because God was telling me, you know, whatever reason, you, you, you did not represent me correctly. You know? So what, I couldn't go on, so I had to go to my mom and apologize. Why? Because I care more about his reputation than mine. You know? And if my mom were to reject God because of my misrepresentation, you know, God would not hold me guiltless. So, in conclusion, yes, in conclusion, you know, sometimes we think we are bearing God's name when we go witnessing for God, isn't it? Huh? When was the last time you, you know, you, you took, you, you what last time you, uh, you witnessed for Him? But it's not, you know, when you're sharing the gospel, it's not when you're going on missions trip, you know, you bear His name every day of your lives because we are children of the Lord, right? Children of the light. What, what did Jesus say? He said, let, your shine, let the light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so there are many opportunities today in our COVID-stricken um, you know, situation. People are yearning for some show. Is there a God? And so I think you and I, we've got many, many opportunities to represent Yahweh accurately. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> so you see, every law or every requirement that God prescribes for us is for our loving response. Eh? When Jesus was asked, so-called, you know, by these clever Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment, right? Remember what Jesus said? Now, Jesus would have answered, should, we, we would expect Jesus to answer, the greatest commandment is that we obey God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and strength. Did Jesus say that? Did he say we should obey? He didn't say that, right? He said the greatest commandment is that we love God. Love. Why is, why is it important? Because you can obey without loving. You can drag your feet, you know. You can just do it as duty. But you cannot love without obeying. Love precedes obedience. And that's what the requirements are about. You see, when you forget that I am the Lord your God who has rescued you, from the house of slavery, you forget that connection at the preamble and the prologue, everything else will be duty. That's not what God is saying. Love. I'm looking for love. And if you really love me, you would obey me. Jesus said that. If you love me, you will obey my commands. So the proof of our love is obeying His commands. Okay? So that's in a nutshell today's message. Tell your neighbor, Yahweh commands us to love and worship Him alone. Amen. So love, right? So the next two weeks, we'll talk about the other requirements from 4 to 10. And remember, every time you hear a requirement, it is not obedience before love. It is love before obedience. And when we love somebody, we will do what pleases that person, right? You can do it as a duty, but you can do it out of love. And God wants us to do it out of love. So today, as we close this message, I want to give opportunities for those of us listening to the Word of God. Today, I don't know how, uh, how you, your relationship has been thus far for this year or now or currently. What kind of relationship do you have with God? I want you to know that the Lord wants a relationship of love. 
He doesn't want us just to blindly, forcefully obey Him for other reasons, any other reasons except to love, except out of love and gratitude for Him. Otherwise, all the requirements will come as a list of do's and don'ts. He's not looking for that. He's looking for our love because He's not an angry God. He's a jealous He's a jealous God. He's jealous for us. He's jealous that we serve only one master. And so today, I want to ask two questions to the first group. Is God the only one you love? Does He have sole ownership of you? But you see, Pastor, I put God first. Yeah, that's good. But that's not what he's asking. He's asking, am I the only one, only God of your life? If I am, then all your affection will be naturally towards me. But I confess, even, even for myself, in the morning when, when I wake up, am I thinking about God or am I looking at my phone? You know? <laughs> so is God the sole owner. Am I really devoted to Him? Is my highest, purest, best form of love dedicated to God and God alone? Or am I bowing to any other man-made gods that I or others have created? It's not about priority. Does God even exist in our life? Is He the controlling? Is He there helping us, leading us, touching us, teaching us? Or is someone else? Is God the only one that you love? And if you say, Pastor, I want to love God. I want to love Him as my absolute Lord, the absolute Lord of my life. I want to give Him exclusive rights and access to every part of me. I want Him to tear down every rival, every rival throne and idol. I don't want them to stand in your presence. Or eyes closed or heads bowed. And you sing, Pastor, that's my prayer. I want to serve God and worship Him alone. If that's you, whether you're online, Bukit Bato, or here, just quickly put up your right hand to the Lord. Yes, I see your hand. Yes, thank you. Thank you for those hands. Yeah, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for us that we will give God the only attention and affection that He deserves. The second group I want to ask, how have you been living you know, for the Lord. Yeah, we are Christians. You are. You say you are a child of God, but how? The Lord has given you full authority to use His name, to be associated with His name. But how have we been uh, representing Him? How have you been representing Him? Not only when you're doing the spiritual things, like, you know, sharing the gospel, going on missions, but how are you representing God? Or are you misrepresenting Him day to day? In your conduct, in your conversation with people, you know, in that joke that you, you laughed and you thought, eh, you know, that doesn't represent God at all. That's not a holy joke. Or the gossip that you, you kind of like share. Or something, you know. And, and you, you forget that God is asking us not only to represent Him, but not to misrepresent Him. See, while others may not yet see His glory for themselves, they can see how we are imaging Him. How we make our choices what we like, what we value, how we treat people, whether we have integrity, mean what we say and do what we tell others to do, or, or have we misrepresented Him? And if we have, can we confess and apologize because we care more about His reputation than ours? And so if you're saying, Lord, help me not to be guilty of misrepresenting you to others so that they will not reject you because of how I have reflected you in my speech and in my conduct. Help me to be conscious of the fact that I carry and I bear your name wherever I go. If that's you, also quickly lift up your hands before the Lord. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. I see those hands. Those of you who are online and at Bukit Bato, just come before God and say, Lord, I, I, if I have misrepresented you in my day-to-day, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to come before you and say, help me, God, not to misrepresent you, to be aware and be conscious that whatever I do, whatever I say, gives people a picture, whether it's an accurate or false picture. 
Father, we, you see all those hands, right? And those, all those hearts have, that have been lifted up before you today. They want to say, God, that you are the only God of their lives. Nobody before them and nobody after them. You are the only one that stands between them and you. And that those of us who are saying, God, forgive me if I have unconsciously or even willingly misrepresented you in the way that I should not have. In the way that I should not cause people not to accept you. Not because of who you are, but because of my false representation. So our Father, we thank you today for your great love that you would call us into relationship with you. That through Jesus Christ, we have been made your treasured possessions, your royal priests, and your holy people. Lord, you see, these hands that have been raised, we ask that you take your rightful place as the Lord of their lives and enable each of them to bear your name accurately so that you alone will receive all glory and honour. Help them and us not to misrepresent your holy name. Above all, and more importantly, let this be done as a loving response with gratitude to you for all that you are to us and for all that you have done for us. We dedicate ourselves to you alone and declare that we will not bow down or serve any God in heaven or on earth and underneath the earth, but you and you alone. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said, Amen.
crevice of my soul.